Hello and welcome to Who Watches the World Cup with me, Dominic Archer, and David Bryan. David, how are you doing this fine day? I am terrific. The coffee oh, is wow. That, <laughs> that That morning coffee. Now, if I remember correctly, this is slightly off topic, but where we used to live together, as listeners may know, and I seem to remember that you find it difficult to have your morning shit without a coffee. <laughs> Are, are you having are you having this coffee now so that when we finish when we finish recording you can go and have your morning shit is that what this is about it it oddly seems to line up perfectly yeah it's that, just something about the timing of it and maybe the stress of uh, of the, <laughs> of recording um, allows me to release once we finished well congratulations to you i'm glad that we're we're making some progress for your bowels now yeah and uh, and, and hi mum and sorry about that no. <laughs> no, no, she's she's a, she's a big fan. I think both of our mums will really appreciate listening to uh, conversations about you shitting. So, <laughs> on 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 a slightly more serious note, um, this is who watches the World Cup. This is a podcast that compares uh, the the results of the the countries playing in Russia twenty eighteen with the the political actions going on in those countries at the time. And this is our final, our final look at the the groups, the uh, the World Cup groups. Well, today we're looking at groups G and H. Now, Group G uh, happens to uh, to contain England, both of our, our home nation. Um, and if we're talking about England, I think it's really difficult to to discuss England and English culture without discussing the uh, the great poets, the great storytellers from from English culture, such as. The post World War uh, post World War One poets like uh, Sassoon or or Asquith, or even later twentieth century poets like uh, Frank Skinner and David Baddiel, and <laughs> this is uh, there's uh, there's there's a, a feeling going around around England these days, David, uh, a feeling of it's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming, football's coming home, as the great Skinner and Baddiel once said. Gareth Southgate, the whole of England is with you. That was in the lyrics for the 1998 Three Lions song, lyrics by David Baddiel and Frank Skinner. Gareth Southgate, the whole of England is with you. 20 years later, Gareth Southgate is, is the manager of England. David, what, what's happened? What, what has Southgate achieved for us in, in the, last, the last few days? Wow, he's, you can't really uh, say... I'm sorry, you can't really say enough about about what Gareth Southgate has done and how he's changed the the culture. I think of the of the English national team. Um, he's taken what used to be the nightmare job. There was actually a BBC documentary that came out right before the World Cup called "The Impossible Job" about um, England managers and the, and the managerial role of in, in English football. Um, and he, if it isn't a possible job, he's figured it out. I think. I mean, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Um, the first two group games have been have been good, and the squad looks impressive. But we do have the toughest of our group games still to come um, on Thursday against Belgium. Um, but I think there's at least uh, an expectation that we can uh, get past the first knockout uh, first knockout round and get to the quarterfinals, which would be which once upon a time would have been seen as a minimum. But I think just in the, the realms of what. We've experienced as English football fans over the last twenty years, quarterfinals is kind of seen as a as a success. 
um, not only because of what we've experienced, but also because this is a, a young squad. That's one thing that Gareth Southgate has really changed is he's um, put his faith in young players. That's something that previous managers were hesitant to do um, in favour of playing all the the big names, the big stars of the, that real that real peak of when the Premier League was the was the uh, pinnacle of of European domestic football, and the 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 biggest English clubs were all um, shepherded and captained by the English players. And we had the likes of Gerrard and Lampard and Rio Ferdinand and David Beckham and all these this amazing wealth of players. And it seemed like with that, those kind of players, how can we not? How can England not be success? And for some reason, somehow these players and no manager could ever get that gelling, could ever get that working and could ever get England doing what really they should be doing with the, the players that we have. So for Gareth Southgate to come along and mix the whole thing up, taking his experience from being the under-21s manager previous to this and his work with a lot of these players that he's now brought through to the senior squad and and allowing them to express themselves and taking the pressure off. And and I think the, that was that was the, the, the big key, really, is that throughout the last 20 years, the the England team couldn't breathe for for media pressure and expectation um and that that huge weight that we we put on these these young men's shoulders that maybe <laughs> thanks to the the failures of of years gone by these younger players don't have to experience they they know that they're not an awful lot is, is expected of them and they can go out and express themselves um not to say that they're not they don't have the ability to go far because they certainly do. And with Gareth Southgate at the helm, I think he's really um, solidified a, a, a team spirit and a unity with, amongst these guys and organised them well, got them drilled to a point where we can remain organised, remain solid, do the nitty gritty stuff as a unit and then allow those creative players, to the Jesse Lingards, the Rashfords, the and we'd like to see uh, Raheem Sterling do a bit more, but you know, those exciting players to really express themselves, get goals, create chances, and put a bit of fear into a fear into the teams we come up against, which I think we did see against Tunisia when that fear manifested as rugby, and <laughs> in, in the way that Tunisia tried to deal deal with England, and we again we saw a bit of that against Panama, where things got really tetchy a bit in that mm. first half, where they they tried to incorporate that physical physical strategy to stop England and it I think half time came at a good a good moment where it was really a danger of boiling over and the Panama players were lo- really losing their rags with the with the the referee um in particular uh but obviously we've got Belgium to look forward to which would be a very a vastly a vastly different uh challenge yeah now just looking at the, the current England squad I said this to you before uh, before we started watching I recognise maybe five or six players from the whole England squad. And from the starting 11 against uh, against Panama, I recognised three of the names of the players. As you were saying, this is a very young squad, a very progressive squad. We're, we're moving, rather than looking back to, uh, to, to days gone by, we're, we're looking forward. This isn't Australia where, where we're pulling up, you know, uh, we're pulling up 38-year-old stars of yesteryear. This is very much a case of, of looking forward. But we, we, you were saying that, that that means that there is there is less of a pressure on these players. I think there is an element of that is true. But uh, Harry Kane is, is our captain. Harry Kane now for, for two years, three years, maybe even four years, has been seen as a star of the Premier League. 
playing uh, playing for Spurs. But then Raheem Sterling, as you were saying before, we want to see more from from Raheem Sterling. He's got forty caps. Uh, he's only scored two goals in those forty caps for for England. But the guy is twenty three years old, right? Yeah, I he, mean, he's he's twenty three years old with with forty caps. And very recently, yeah. he he was just in the news a few weeks ago because he had a tattoo. Was it an AK forty seven or something? Some and kind then, of automatic yeah, weapon. Th- yeah, I don't there are there are conversations based around whether Raheem Sterling is a good role model or not. And this is a man who still needs a role model in his life. He's 23 years old. <laughs> like, what? how old? I don't know how old he was when he got his first cap. But he could not have been, well, 18 or 19 if we're looking at 40 caps. He has almost twice as many caps as Harry Kane. Harry Kane is on 26 caps with, with, with 18 goals. Raheem Sterling is on 40 caps with only two goals. But he, Raheem Sterling has more caps than Danny Welbeck and Danny Welbeck is four years older than him so you right I think you I think you're right about there is an element of youth within this team that relieves some of that pressure on them but Raheem Sterling seems to be strangely in this Messi-esque Ronaldo-esque situation where he is having pressure poured onto him but the dude's 23 years old he's got yeah he got a tattoo of a gun so, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why what that what that why that really matters. I mean, it's a sort of thing that the media, of course, are going to latch onto and try and make a story out of. But um, yeah, I mean, it has a bit of like when he explained where it comes from, it 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 makes sense. I think that once he got an explanation from from Rahim, the media very quickly were like, oh, well, okay, then fine. Like they they wanted it to be a bit more like. I think they would love. They would have loved to have been to have pinned it on like video games or like urban hip hop culture, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah and yeah. Um, that gangster culture that which they assume. Well, maybe I don't want to take too many steps here, but maybe you worry that they assume he is um, intrigued with at least because of his background, yeah, and well, his the, race. Yeah, the fact when is, when his, his, the name, story... his, his name is Rahim, right? Like this yeah. is this is a conservative media. That is looking and going, oh, there is a man named Raheem. He is in the public eye and he has a gun tattoo. Well, why don't we talk like we why don't we talk about how all those things link together in a negative light? Yeah, and, and it would as, not surprise me if it was the Daily Mail that uh, broke yeah, that story yeah, first. Yeah, yeah. And it, that's, yeah, that's, it's this, that's a it's real... interesting what you say about his age, though, and the fact that maybe because he, he is the third most capped player in this squad at the mm. age of 23 like you say he's on 40 is he 41 now 40 caps yeah 40 caps for england jordan henderson second most capped player in the squad with what 40 where 40, is he? What, 41 40, what, yeah. 41 caps but he's in his late 20s so oh jordan henderson and i share a birthday Aww. how nice is that happy birthday jordan happy henderson happy birthday for a couple of weeks ago jordan yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, the most capped player in the squad is Gary Gahill, who has 60 caps. Mm. And he's obviously in his 30s and was one of the only three players in the squad who are over 30. Him and Ashley Young and Jamie, uh, Jamie Vardy, the only over 30s in the squad, which actually makes our squad the third youngest on average right. behind France France and Nigeria. But um, yeah, I mean, look, if you look through plenty of other squads, there are some squads that have many, multiple players who have over 100 caps. But uh, going back to what you were saying about... Um, 
the this the pressure that maybe put is being put on the Raheem Sterling. I don't agree that it's up that it, obviously I don't think you meant that it was on on a par with the likes of Ronaldo and, and mm. Messi. He mm. isn't he isn't the one shining light that we can all rally behind. But he's certainly a player who showed loads of promise. And you're right, he must have been capped for England for the first time when he was quite young, eighteen or nineteen years old, perhaps. Uh, but even in those early years, he's, he was a player that showed a lot of promise. It, it had shades of when Theo Walcott got called up to the World Cup squad at the, when he was a teenager and then didn't even play. Yeah. Like he took up a spot that could have been used by a player. I think it was Sven Goran Eriksson was the manager then. Yeah. And there was all this furore about why even bother taking him if you were never going to play him in the first place. Um, so, um, so Raheem has had that kind of... When he was at Liverpool, I think his goal-scoring record may have been hampered by the fact that he wants to be up there on the front line. Like England, have actually been playing him in these first two games, playing him right up there with Harry Kane. That's where he wants to be. Um, at Liverpool, he was always pushed really wide. Um, so he had to, he could show a bit of his his pizzazz and his zip and some of his skill. And his assist record might might be quite good. That might be worth looking at. Um, but now that he's moved to Man City, he's allowed to, to come further forward and support the front, the front player, whether it's Aguero or or Gabriel Jesus at Man City, his goal-scoring record in the last year was great. It completely justified his at least his inclusion in the World Cup squad and maybe even his starting place and him give, getting the number 10 shirt, which effectively means, hey, you're going to play. Yeah. Play every game. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think the, with the way modern football goes, 23 is kind of like you're expected to be at your prime at 23, 24, 25. Yeah, like that isn't, this is no, that's no longer young. In footballing terms, I mean, if you look at it in terms of a scale, you you retire by the time you're 35, like if if you're lucky. Uh, Jermaine Genus, who is a former England and um, Spurs player, is now a pundit for the BBC. He had to retire at 31 because of injury, and we've seen players have to retire even sooner because you, you never really know when something is going to go wrong with your body or yeah. you take a knock that ends your career. So. At 23, you need to be firing on all cylinders because your your days are numbered, your years are limited, um, and he has, does have to be of the role model that that professional footballers are and are trained to be from a very young age. And uh, I think the youngest player in the squad, Alexander Arnold, is 19. It seems strange that a man born in 1998 oh is now God. a professional footballer in the England yeah. squad for the World Cup. But yeah, and he even he needs to be a role model if you're a Football is held in such high regard, especially especially among kids, that as soon as you sign professional papers, you are, you are a role model. That yeah. that's it, and you need to behave. And I think what we have seen from this squad, we haven't always seen with England squads, not necessarily even in football. I mean, in other sports, sometimes the professionals let let, them, let us down, or from all around the world, people let their countries down as athletes when they should be behaving themselves, but they don't. This squad have not shown any, many of the misbehaviour that we've. Um, we think maybe we're, people were worried about with them being young and with what we've seen through social media that they're all very, a lot of them are very fun and like to express themselves and show their personal side on their social media accounts. And it was a question of, can they be mature enough to go to a huge tournament like this and perform and gel and do England proud. And so far it's been, se- it's been seamless. I think they've been, they've been absolutely brilliant in their professionalism and their, what they've, what they've shown um, we'd like to, like I say, we'd like to see better performances from Raheem Sterling. But certainly, his character has been has been exemplary. He's tried what to do what he can. He's trying his best. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it'll just go. We'll see how far we can go uh, with the right attitude. Which, as we've seen from some of the lower teams who have showed up and remained organised and put, given a hundred percent with great spirit and great determination, 
that you can really ham hamper stronger teams. Mexico did it to Germany, for, uh, which is the one example that still sticks out in my head because that I kind of I can't believe that ever happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did that ever happen? Um, yeah, and we saw just yesterday with Iran and Morocco holding Portugal and Spain to draws that if you, you uh, spirit and character can take you a long way. So if you combine that with the ability, I mean, England are one of the, we would hope to think one of the better teams footballing wise in the tournament. If we can keep our attitude right, I think there's no reason why we can't go, can't, can't go a long way. And hopefully Raheem can, uh, I like to call him Radio Raheem because it reminds me, do you remember uh, Do the Right Thing, the Spike Lee movie? Yeah, Character great film, great film. Radio, Radio Raheem, yeah. So I, I, if I'm yelling at Raheem on the on screen during the England game, I usually call him Radio. Um, so <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to see um, as much as uh, Marcus Rashford is breathing down his neck for his starting spot, and I really like Marcus Rashford. I think it'll be better for the whole England squad and mm. for the team, and obviously for Sterling himself if he is the one who can get himself firing, get himself bubbling, get him, get himself a goal for his confidence, and you know be a um, be a linchpin for us going yeah. forward in this tournament. Well, I know that all five of our listeners are are really hoping and really waiting for us to talk about Belgium. But Belgium, are, no matter what happens in this uh, this final match between England and Belgium, we know that they are going through to the next round. We haven't really had a chance to touch on them yet. So I think that Belgium is a team that really that we should kind of leave. We should leave until they, they play whoever they play in the next round because uh, that, that, that gives us a real chance to focus on them then. And England did just win 6-1. So like that's not going <laughs> to happen again in this tournament. So I think this is really kind of a good chance to talk uh, to focus on England, knowing they are probably going to get decimated in a couple of days anyway. Um, (laughs) but but this is uh, uh, for me the the England-Panama match was really interesting because I didn't I had to sleep during the England-Tunisia match I didn't get to see it because of you know I complained about the time difference before and it's kind of (laughs) the same the same deal uh, the same deal with the England-Tunisia match but with the England-Panama match I was excited because I I actually got to watch it and on the one hand uh, I I was messaging you while it was going on and you know I going into it I had that thing of like because uh, i'm in uh, i'm in china at the moment i'm not hearing any of this it's coming home it's coming home stuff except for second hand right i'm not getting it in, in the wider media only when uh, like you know my brother will go oh it's coming home i'm like what what do we get another dog or something like that right like <laughs> like what what's 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 coming home um but watching this England match, I I didn't realise how excited I was until Stones scores that first goal. Eight minutes in, Stones, I've never heard of this guy before in my life. <laughs> Bang, he gets a goal. Bang, 40 minutes, he gets an, he gets another goal. I don't, I have never seen, I don't know him from, from literally anybody. But when he scores those goals, I think he is my new favourite person in, in the world, right? Like, I'm I'm roaring. The neighbours are like, oh, my God, what's happening in Dominic's house, right? Like, it, it's... Yeah, I mean, you, you, made, you did message me to say, I didn't realise how much I cared about England at this World Cup until I started screaming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly how that's exactly how I felt about this. I was like, yeah, it's England. Who cares? And then we're fucking beating Panama 5-0 at half time, And I have never flown so high in my life. <laughs> um, but what I thought was really interesting ab- about this England game was, yeah, Stones' goal was great. 
Stones' Stones' second goal was great. Lindgaard's goal, especially, was like that was just great football, right? Like that is when we think about what good football is. Lindgaard's goal was was like, like mamma mia, what 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 a perfect goal! You can't ask for more than that. But then we're looking at Harry Kane, right? And Harry Kane, he scored. The guy has scored four goals in two games, right? Like like you you can't hold that against him. No one would ever five goals in two games. Five hey, goals. That's not, sure, that's not sure. Oh, of course. Sorry, Kane, sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, he got the hat trick. I'm sorry. He got he got the hat trick in that game, which is is insane. But the first two of Harry go, uh, Harry Kane's goals in this game have come from the same way that we have mentioned multiple times in this podcast. Is that uh, perhaps it's because of VAR? Perhaps is there's just something in the air in in this contest? But barely a match goes by without a penalty. Right, like it is rare for a match to go by without one penalty being called in it. It seems like every other game has a penalty called in it, and England Panama has two penalties called in. Now, granted, Harry Kane's penalty taking in this situation is like the most perfect penalty taking I have ever seen in my life. It's right. Oh, like, it- it get it touches me all over when I, when yes, I see those penalties. Yeah, yeah. It's because incredible. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. The same reason that when when you see Messi, he t- Messi takes that that penalty in the first Argentina game and he just fucks it, right? And you are, you are <laughs> you are saying like this is a guy whose his head isn't in the right space, right? This is the greatest player in the world and he can't even like he doesn't even look confident stepping up to the penalty spot. But twice in this match, twice Harry Kane steps up looks i have never seen a cucumber that looks as cool as harry kane looks stepping up to that penalty spot right like he goes up he slicks his hair back both times because you know he's probably got some sponsorship deal he he steps <laughs> he he steps back and he just nails those goals nails them and in uh, the face of all that that uh oh i don't know what you want to call it but the panama players were getting Really, like I could see them shouting in his ear. The goalie was yeah. getting in his face, yeah. very trying physical. everything they can to get into his head. Yeah. But he he looked like he he had shut off the world. Yeah, he he was in his own bubble and he was just waiting for his time. And he knew what exactly what he was going to do yeah. and that they were going to go. They were going to go in. There was no yeah. doubt in his mind. Yeah. And what what is the name of the Panama the Panama captain that you mentioned to me before? What's his name? Do you remember Roman Torres? Yeah, you said to me before that now that he he plays in the MLS or something, right? And now yeah, he he, he is. In in FIFA, the the you know the the video game, the EA game, he is now the strongest player on FIFA or, or something like that, right? Like, yeah, he's got the highest strength rating. In the yeah, game like so you know going into this, Panama are going to be a physical team, and they played a physical game. I I haven't seen a game of football that has been that physical for for a long time. Yeah, like, I think it that it wasn't really football what they were playing. Yeah, they were they were, they were physical to the point of. They were, a ball might not have even been on the pitch and they probably would have still been grabbing right, and pushing right. and squeezing. Yeah. But I think what's so great about what England did here was that the England team of old would have been, you know, just falling to the ground in the way we would be used to seeing from from other countries. Um, and there was a game, I think I saw a game yesterday. I can't remember exactly which one it was. But it was one of the lesser teams... As we were saying, we were seeing before. Which game did I watch yesterday? It may have been. Um, oh, it was I, yesterday. 
I think it was Russia Uruguay. I think it was Russia Uruguay, and Uruguay okay. Uruguay are one of the the one of the teams I I would think of as you know falling to the ground and not getting back up, right? But I was you know, <laughs> Russia lost that game three 0 But what really impressed me was there was a time where the Uruguay players just threw a Russian guy to the ground, but rather than just staying down trying to get a free kick, the guy just got back up and went for it, right? And like. That's yeah. kind of how I felt about this this England team was, yeah, the Panama was being physical and kind of messing them around. But the England team that I'm used to seeing are the ones that just collapse. And then you're like, for God's sake, right? You know, like, this is England. Like, Millwall and football violence are part of football culture in England. Football <laughs> hooligans are famous from our country. Why are you collapsing to the ground? I don't want you to play like Panama, but I want you to have more of an element of that you know that like be strong right yeah, I want, there is a I, bit I of a plague of, of this of this kind of thing in football and that's the one thing that's wound me up the most about this uh, this world cup is that that much level there is of play acting and falling yeah. to the ground uh, uh, you know with such weak contact looking for free kicks before there there's an opportunity there have been opportunities where a forward player has a, has a chance to score they're in the penalty box and they they could just pull the trigger and shoot, but they would rather try and get a penalty. Yeah. Because well, I don't know why. Because penalties are hard. Like I know they're you don't you know you're standing there by yourself. Nobody can tackle you. You're only twelve yards from goal. But that's a lot of pressure mm. on a penalty kick. Yeah. So the, it's not guaranteed that you're going to score. So the only um, advantage I can see in all this, whether it's in the box, whether it's in the middle of the pitch, is you're only trying to get the other team in trouble. You're only trying to get more yellow cards or maybe even red cards for the other team, which is the just it's completely against the spirit of football for me, and yes. it's something that's been germinating for decades, and it's just, yeah. it's it's more and more, and you see it more and domestically. You see it a lot in more, much more in uh, the other European leagues besides the English Premier League. But when you see it on the on the world stage in the World Cup, there is obviously so many players from all around the world where this is just a normal part of of uh, of football. So yeah, you're right. It was it's Russia were are a good one actually, where they don't they don't play that they don't play that they want to. Especially, I think maybe that's something to do with the fact that they're hosting and they're mm. in front of their home fans. Like they want to be seen as strong, strong Russian men. <laughs> <laughs> They don't want to be all these namby pamby Europeans who just yeah. fling themselves to the ground and roll eight times, and then when the free kick's been given or not, they hop back to their feet and be like, and you know, sort of do that fake limping shit. Yeah, like oh, I, I mean, I was hurt there, but now I'm going to run back in and get into position, or now I'm going to try and run and get in position to score a goal because I snicked my team a free kick. But you're absolutely right; England didn't rise to any of that, and they've been exemplary in that in that regard. Yeah, and one of the things that actually really impressed me with this was, yeah, we got two penalties, but those were those were actual penalties, right? Like those deserved wallers. Yeah, they just those actually were penalties. This isn't a case of our players just collapsing to the ground. They should actually have been penalties, and and they were. Um, but on the other hand, I think we have about I'm, I'm going to call it England has 62 minutes of of gold. And real, I think a lot of it is luck. If they, if those, if Panama had been more reserved, then Kane wouldn't have got those two penalties, right? So yeah. let's say let's let's live in an alternate Elseworld, DC Elseworld style universe. I've got full comic books again. A parallel <laughs> universe where the Panama defenders defend better, 
Kane doesn't get those two penalties. Okay, now we're we're looking at a four-one, assuming that you know that their reserved keeping uh, their reserved defending doesn't allow more goals in. So we're looking at four-one, right? So Panama, if they played better, would really be in a position of a four-one. Then we look at Harry Kane's sixty-two minute goal, sixty-second minute goal, where that is just the world's flukiest goal, right? Yeah. Uh, an England player strikes towards the goal. It goes off the back, the, the back heel of Harry Kane, deflecting it to the other side of the goal, completely by, completely by chance. Um, the Panama goalie, there's nothing he can do about it because it, this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and and it you know, when, you, when you're hot, you're hot. So, you know, sometimes these, when you when you're in luck, you're in luck, and you yeah. can't stop yeah. yourself from scoring, even if you're facing yeah. the other way and you're not even got the ball. Mm. <laughs> So that that then puts the score to to six nil. Um, so it, it we're sixty two minutes in. We've seen a new England, the Gareth Southgate's England, the youth coming forward. Sixty two minutes in, uh, Harry Kane gets his hat trick. They immediately take him off. They yeah, I think he was about to go off anyway as well. So it was, yeah. I think because um, whoever came on for him was warming up on the side of the pitch. Right. And then the goal went in, and they carried on with the substitution anyway. So yeah. Yeah, presumably that was going to happen regardless. Yeah. So then, so again, you couldn't couldn't be more lucky, could you? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. You get that freak uh, hat trick in that way, but also you were about to be taken off. Yeah, the, the minute you're about to be taken off, it happens. Yeah. So then Harry King comes off. Uh, Lindgard comes off. There, there's one more player who comes off. I can't quite remember who that is. Trippier came off a bit later for right, Danny Rose. Right, but for Danny Rose, and this Danny Rose is the perfect example of what happens after the 62nd minute. Because for 62 minutes, we have seen uh, an England that we are excited to see. Then they start making the substitutions. And Danny Rose was the one player that I noticed who all of a sudden, England go from being a team that is dominating this match 6-0 to being on the back foot. And I don't know what happened. But when those players came off, Danny Rose was the perfect example. A player, a, a Panama player crosses a kick it's going out for a core uh, going out for a goal kick danny rose slides in kicks it out for a corner right he, without yeah. with if danny rose was not there it would have been a goal kick danny rose is involved it goes out for a corner i don't know what changed in this england squad but the minute harry kane and the others start coming off maybe it's just because we're taking off our attacking players bringing on our defensive players we we're with telegraphing we're not attacking anymore we're going on the defensive but Panama brings it up and for about the 30 minutes that are left of that game Panama are they've swapped they're not this aggressive defensive team anymore they get is this their first goal in World Cup history for Panama I think yeah yeah. and they deserved that goal and uh, I think you said you said to me that Gareth Southgate was annoyed that we even conceded that goal. Is that right? Well, why yeah, yeah, why yeah. was Gareth Southgate annoyed? Well, he said in a post-match interview that he didn't even like the performance. Really, um, he didn't like how we started. Uh, he said we started really cagey and it took us a while to gel. And then, yeah, I think in terms of trying to qualify at the top of the group to be in the best position for the next round. It could come down to goal difference, so we're in a great that six goal cushion um, would have put us top on goal difference as opposed to and then that when Panama got that one goal back, it means we're even on points with Belgium at the top of the group, even yeah. on goal difference, yeah, um, even on goals scored. So then it comes down to who's got the uh, the least yellow cards at 
determines who was sitting on top. So he really wanted that extra that extra cushion. And I mean, I didn't want Panama to score either, but the part of me that loves football probably more than I love England is I I wanted Panama to score. Like it was, and like we talked about, they cut they changed they changed their character a bit during the game. The first half they were a bunch of, a bunch of yobs. And it was kind of embarrassing. And like I said, I was glad half time came because it, it could have descended into too many goals for England and maybe some more disciplinary action for the Panama players because they were just losing their rags completely, losing their heads. Um, so when the goal came, I was like, oh, that's annoying, but good for them. Yeah. Especially since it was like their, because we talked about Roman Torres being their captain. He's like their, their on the pitch captain. Um, still, he's he's thirty two, so you know he's one of the more experienced players. But the guy came on Beloy, he's like thirty six or thirty seven, and he was their their true captain. Because um, I mean, and Torres handed him the captain's armband when he came on. So for Panama to score and for him to score it, it was kind of a nice little fairy tale. But yeah. I'm sure Gareth Southgate, if he wasn't England manager, would have said the same thing. But as England manager, he would have much rather the six nil win, and we sit pretty on top of the top of Group G without all these caveats to 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 break the tie between us and Belgium. Well, one would hope now that... I think that there are two ways of looking at this. Number one, uh, we we conceded the goal. We played infinitely worse when we started making those substitutions. We saw the England team of old and we conceded a goal. Um, that, I yeah, think... Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, think that I feel, just... for, for me, that is a comfortable reminder, right? If you are going to get a reminder of... This is how England normally play. You want to get it when you're six nil up, and like yeah, we see them stepping back. They they've they've scored six goals. You you can take the chance to relax, but if we had been ahead at the top of the table, then when we go into Belgium, we would be in that mindset of yeah, but we're top of the table, right? But now I think Gareth Southgate is annoyed going into this Belgium game, and I think that is an advantage that we have. We're not relaxed going into this Belgium game because Belgium are one of the teams that could go ahead and win this thing. And if we go into the Belgium game going, yeah, but we're sitting pretty on the top of the table, then any chance England has to relax in a game, they will take. And the fact that we can't relax going into this Belgium game, I, to me, I think is an advantage. I don't know what you think about that. No, I, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that's very astute. Well done, Dom. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. You know what? I, I feel like I'm really getting into this football thing. That's, yeah. that's I try not to patronise you anymore, but that, yeah, I, can, I do completely agree with you. I think that's exactly the right mindset to go into because we did. I think it wasn't necessarily... I mean, I think Danny Rose... It's a shame for Danny Rose because he missed a lot of the season through injury and he was included, I think, on merit and on his ability, which is good. And when he's in form, he maybe is our best left back and he might have been first choice ahead of Ashley Young if he would played the whole season. Yeah. But that little shift in defence, it was strange that when Danny Rhodes was coming on, I was like, the obvious swap, swap is for um, Ashley Young because it's left back for uh, left wing back for left wing back, and Ashley Young being one of the older players, you think maybe he needs a bit more rest. But no, they take off Kieran Trippier, who's had an amazing tournament so far. But I think one of our best players over the two games. They switch Ashley Young to right full, uh, right wing back, so Danny Rhodes can go at left full back, and then left that that are left back areas where their goal comes from. Yeah. So you're right. I think. He, like maybe that just comes down to a little bit of nerves on his part. He's not quite from 100% sharp. He's not 100% fit. Um, so I'm sure he'll be annoyed at that. But um, I, yeah, I think there is that temptation to to take your foot off the pedal. And if because if you're England and you're six nil up, 
and it's the 70th minute, yeah, sure, you're going to start to to wind it down. But if you're Panama and you're fighting for your pride, you're not going to take your foot off the gas. Yeah. So I think it was actually a very worthy and timely reminder to the England players that with exactly what you said, that we can't relax. This is the World Cup. This isn't a 38-game long season. This is every game matters. Every game counts. Every goal counts. Every minute counts. Mm. And yeah, um, going into Belgium, we we uh, we do need to go into it thinking we can't coast this. We're going to need to fight to the to the last, to the death. Um, even though it's the group stage, this, it matters as much as if we're playing them in the quarterfinals or semifinals or whatever. So yeah, and I think if we had gone in on top of the group, um, having not conceded against Panama, you, we would have been too comfortable. And yeah. that's exactly where where complacency comes in. Yeah, and good on Panama as well. Like as we as you we were just saying, like this is their first World Cup ever, right? And they they yeah yeah they they just conceded. They've conceded nine goals in two games, right? But they scored their first ever World Cup, and in that last thirty minutes, I think when Harry Kane is is subbed off, we our captain changes to Jordan Henderson. That is a moment where where the the match for me that was when the match took a turn. Um, yeah, Pan- well, you can imagine like, the Panama players breathing a sigh of relief seeing Harry Kane go off the pitch. Yeah, but right? he scored a hat trick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. But so they're, the- they're like, oh, thank God he's gone. Right. Yeah. Now maybe we're left because Jamie Vardy came on for him. I he barely touched the ball that last yeah. half an hour. I thought the same thing. I thought, well, now Jamie Vardy is on. He's second to Harry Kane, but this is Jamie Vardy of all people. Like this is a guy who's going to put in a performance because he's second yeah. to Harry Kane. He wants to. Show he's at least going to run around. To- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But again, to to Panama, yes, Panama lost the game 6-1. But if we put this into a time frame, Panama lost two-thirds of the game, right? They lost 60 of 90 minutes. But I would say for that last 30 minutes, Panama owned that game. They owned that last 30 minutes of the game. And yeah, it's it's a game of two halves, not of thirds. But if it was a game of thirds, (laughs) Panama won one of those thirds. And I think they they really deserve uh, some credit going in for that match because uh, as we're saying this is their first World Cup and they, they they deserved that goal this isn't a game where you're like a, a Portugal game where you're like ugh or, right? or a Uruguay <laughs> game where you're like oh they won 3-0 fuck off Uruguay but in this game <laughs> Panama they deserved that goal and, and, and good on them but quickly before I before I get too distracted let's jump on to, to Group H because if you told me David that Group H contained Colombia, Poland, Japan, and Senegal. I'm I'm looking at a Group H going, well, basically, it's a fight between Lewandowski and James Rodriguez for who is going to finish first. Now, two games in, Robert Lewandowski and Poland are out. And James Rodriguez and Colombia are third in this group. It is helmed equally by Japan and Senegal, both on four points, both on on four goals scored and three goals against. What the hell has happened in Group H? (laughs) It's gone the weirdest of all all the groups, I think. Um, I've said to you before that when I was trying to predict who would come where, I I thought Poland were going to top this group. Um, I'm not ashamed to admit it. 
Uh, I never call myself an expert on these <laughs> on on football, just a fan. But I definitely got that one wrong. I thought Lewandowski. Lewandowski's got a bit of a, a similar situation to some other nations that have produced world-class strikers, but nowhere near the quality in any other area of the pitch to help them out. Shades of um, of Egypt, shades of... Uh, oh, God, now I'm on the spot trying to think of another country that's got a really good striker, but not anyone else who's any good. But um, there, it's, it's so odd that a player can completely outshine the rest of his uh, the rest of his compatriots uh, the way that Robin Lewandowski does and it was his and it's his first world cup he's never been to a world cup before and i really thought he was going to rally his troops yeah get the team behind him but it didn't happen but i won't say i'm upset about it because japan have been a surprise package i think in this world cup senegal have been exciting and they've been fun Colombia found their feet in that second game and started playing some of that pizzazzy, sexy South American football in that second game. And James Rodriguez sort of found his feet and dictated that match against Poland. He 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 ran he ran it completely. And and Falcao is another player who has never been to a World Cup before. One of the most famous strikers in modern football. Really unlucky to miss the last World Cup through injury. Um, had a torrid time uh, with um, around those injuries where he was prolific at uh, Atletico Madrid and his first spell at Monaco. He tries a bit of English football after he's had these horrible knee injuries. Does bugger all at Man U, does bugger all at Chelsea. Then goes back to uh, to Monaco and finds the Falcao of old. And just, you could say it's a, a less cha- um, demanding uh, league, less demanding standard of football. But I think any... Uh, impartial football fan is very, real happy to see Falcao at his best again and and for him to get finally get his World Cup goal like he did on like he did on Sunday. Um but I'm excited about how open this top of this group is, especially since they're whoever uh you know the teams that go through are going to be playing either England or Belgium in the next round. And I think if you're England, you're kind of hoping obviously you're hoping to beat Belgium and or get to stay at the top of the group. And I think you'd rather play Japan over Senegal and Colombia. Um, but really, it could go any way. Like we saw yesterday with Morocco, even though they had been uh, kicked out, kicked out, even though they'd been knocked out of the tournament, they really showed up against Spain and they really gave him a hard time and ended up getting taking a point away from the tournament. And you know, two goals against a team like Spain is something to be proud of. So Poland, even though they're, they're going home, they they could just want to want to go home on a high. Give Japan. Um, I was going to say a good seeing too, but maybe that's not the best, <laughs> the best use of of words. But they could they they won't want to go out floundering. They'll want to go out fighting. Um, but having said that, I think the the other tie, Senegal, Colombia, that's where the excitement's going to lie. Those are two teams who play really good football. Colombia with their South American style, lots of lots of skill, lots of passing, lots of excitement, and Senegal with their pace, their counter attacking pace is unbelievable. And Colombia maybe do lack a little bit in defence, so that should hopefully be an exciting game, and maybe we'll see a lot of goals in that one. But um, it's a, a, the group H is uh, is it, and I'm glad that it's the like the last round of group games. I would I would have been anno- not annoying, but I'm glad we have to wait to the end of the first uh, the first stage to uh, to find out how this is going to end up because I don't think anyone can really predict how it's going to go. 
Okay, so we've spoken about uh, we've spoken about groups G, group H. Now, one thing we haven't actually managed to speak about yet on the podcast is, is the politics of the World Cup. And the whole point of who watches the World Cup is to not only discuss the the football, the amazing football that we've been able to witness, but also how the dark hand of politics has delving into our pure, beautiful game and, and ripped it apart from the inside. And that is no more obvious than with, uh, with, the, with Mo Salah. Uh, so it's time for our first and only segment of Magic, Magic Moments. Moments. <laughs> the timing is bad, but it was still good. It, we'll get it sorted in the edit. It's fine. Steve, Steve, fix it in post. Fix it in post, damn it. <laughs> so, Mo Salah, I wasn't aware of. I haven't been able to see any of the Premier League going into this. You, you told me about Mo Salah and how he's really, uh, he's really taken the Premier League by storm uh, th- this season, playing for Liverpool. It came into this World Cup with a large expectation of of delivering for Egypt. He is really Egypt's standout player. Um, Dave, tell me, how did he even perform in this World Cup? Um, I think we we have to look back to the Champions League final where Liverpool played Real Madrid to look at the, the kind of the genesis of Egypt's failure uh, um, at this World Cup. They they lost again on Monday Saudi Arabia with like a, I think it was a 95th minute Saudi Arabia won that game um, leaving Egypt bottom of the table with no points um, I don't think they've ever won a game at a World Cup actually I think I remember hearing which is which is sad but with the, that injury that Mo Salah sustained in the Champions League final which put his old tournament in doubt for a while and then we talked about it in, uh, in episode one actually about um, whether he'd make the first game or whether he'd be back for the second game they named Egypt named him on the bench for the first game, but he didn't was not brought on against uh, against Uruguay. I think maybe that was a bit of just mind games, trying to put some fear into Uruguay that maybe Mo would get on the pitch. But I think I don't think he was ever going to be fit enough to play. Otherwise, they probably would have brought him on. And the the story of Egypt's games against Russia and Saudi Arabia is kind of similar in that, um, like we touched on with Robert Lewandowski, Mo is fields acres universes or uh, away from any of his closest teammates in terms of their quality he he stands alone really as as a, a world-class player at a world cup um for, for egypt there's no one in that squad that comes close which is a, a real great shame we've seen um sometimes these players can drag their countries through and get results on their own but i think as well as mo did in a in qualifying and when he sort of broke through with Egypt at an Olympics, I think it was under 2012 where he kind of uh, stole the show. Uh, I just felt very sorry for him. He just looked so lost and something, some of the things that have gone on before and around this tournament, I think have affected his, his mentality and, and his confidence because watching him um, against Russia and against Saudi Arabia, it was a bit like watching uh, Messi for Argentina and he looked despondent. He's wandering around, kind of just waiting for his chance. He's not leading from the front. He's not chasing defenders down. And that could be down to his fitness as well. Maybe his shoulder is giving him more problems than than they want to admit. And they had to kind of rush him in just to get, just to stand any chance of doing anything. Um, 
in this tournament. But I mean, he managed to, I think he scored both of uh, Egypt's only two goals at this World Cup. And so maybe we can assume that without him, they wouldn't have scored any. And it looks like Mo was just waiting to go home. I think he looked fed up um, he, he, and hopeless. And it's, it's, it was a real great shame because as we said in that first episode about Group A, the World Cup is about the best players on the best stage. Yeah. And and showing you know performing in front of the world at the highest level and we didn't see we didn't see the mo of the season gone by in an Egypt shirt this uh, this summer which is despite the the cleverness of his goal against Saudi Arabia yesterday he I mean I know Egypt were basically out anyway so he didn't really need to celebrate but it would have been nice to give something back to the fans you know because he scored that goal and he sort of just turned around and did a bit of a wave hugged his teammates and trotted back to the center circle for the restart. So I really think he 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 was he was thinking about what he was going to eat on the flight home <laughs> I think that, during that, that last game against Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that resignation there I think is really telling, and that's where I would kind of like to pull in the, these elements of politics about it because, as we're sure. saying, the the expectations of Mo Salah going into this was will he even be fit, right? And yeah. if if we know professional athletes the way that the western culture has come to know professional athletes it's that will i be ready for the world cup is the worst thing any athlete can go through and he would have been striving to have been fit for that world cup right he would have been going no coach put me in i'm ready and as you're saying he is he is loved in his home country there like since the world cup started there have been masses of pictures of egyptian graffiti of his face just across cairo across egypt of just you know the most beautiful fan art of uh, that really shows what you're saying about these hopes and dreams that Mo Salah kind of carries on his shoulders but this has all been darkened and corrupted by the way that the politics has really worked its way in here and as I, I as I've said multiple times I, I haven't watched much of the Premier League I didn't know what was going on but reading articles I'm seeing phrases like an icon for mainstream moderate Islam in a Europe still reeling from Islamist attacks, right? Like, what a ridiculous phrase to use for a player. We're saying, here is a football player who has done really good for Liverpool. Oh, and by the way, he's the most important person in making sure Islam is seen in a certain light in Europe, right? Like, what What the fuck kind of pressure are you putting on him? Then, as well as that, <laughs> what, you're yeah. saying, oh, and he's also the most important player for Egypt in the entire World Cup. And if he's injured, their entire World Cup dreams are hampered, right? Like, Mo, the pressure on Mo Salah's shoulders must have been incredible. Then... Egypt decides that it's going to host its World Cup team in Chechnya. Now, there are certain reasons that this makes sense. In all of Russia, Chechnya is the only uh, Muslim-majority part of the country. So, as we've discussed this before, that kind of makes sense. that If you have Muslim uh, athletes and that they are going through uh, a period of fasting and they have certain religious things that they have to abide by then being in a Muslim-majority area makes sense for, for adhering to those kinds of needs. But also, Chechnya is kind of far from all of the different places you have to play for the World Cup. Also, Mo Salah has found himself used and abused this World Cup. We, we mentioned before Ramzan Kadrov, the, the, the leader of Chechnya, infamous for the anti-gay purges that have take, taken place in Chechnya. 
he not we, we mentioned actually we mentioned in one of the in the group A episode I think how Kadyrov ambushed Mo Salah and brought him down for a photo opportunity and said you know and took him around on like a walking tour and used Salah as a way as, as a propaganda tool as a way of saying hey you know that I murdered all of those gay people last year but look he's from Africa so I can't be all bad <laughs> there which you know it's it's ridiculous because yes they are they are both uh there are religious ties between the Egyptian team and the uh and the uh and the Egypt the, the the Egyptian team and the area in which they are staying but again Salah plays in he plays in the UK right if Mo Salah was seen over this world cup to be supporting a guy who purges gay people when he returns to Liverpool that's going to be a real fucking problem the UK yeah sure we're fine with kicking out immigrants but if you were to say that you liked purging gays there's going to be a problem there I think going forward but then the Chechnyan leader comes forward and he offers why well, he awards Mo Salah honorary Chechnyan citizenship he says oh Mo Salah you are you are uh, really you are a Chechnyan like us which you know I, I don't know much about Mo Salah but I imagine that that was not something he was angling for I doubt that he he was stepping forward into Chechnya going, you know, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if I was also also a Chechnyan citizen? But it's also, it's not just Chechnya that are doing this. The Egyptian FA took an image of Salah to advertise one of the phone companies. Well, well the, they call it, you know, telecommunications. Uh, we or, or WE in Egypt. They, they took his image, used the Egyptian FA to, to publish it. Um... But Mo Salah has an agreement with Vodafone. So he has a personal agreement with Vodafone as a sponsorship deal. But the Egyptian FA takes his image to promote a rival company, which obviously poses problems with, with his own financial security. Again, in 2014, the Egyptians, they look at Mo Salah and they threaten him with military service. At this time, he's playing in Chelsea, right? So he's playing in the UK, so he's not in Egypt to do his military service. But Egypt says, well, why aren't you doing your military service? You, you should be here. But he said, well, I, I'm currently, I'm playing for Chelsea. And they said, well, then your family isn't able to leave Egypt. And this is, a, this is again, uh, the case of Mo Salah being used as a propaganda piece. He is a famous, prominent Egyptian who is being used by the Egyptian government as, as a tool for this is what Egyptians should be. He did actually manage to get the exemption that he, he was legally, rightfully should have had. He did get that, but he had to thank Egypt's president for it. Uh, then again, we see him in Chechnya being used and abused by the Russian government to to dis you know to disprove any ideas that they could be discriminatory. No, we don't hate gay people. No, we don't hate Middle Eastern people. Look, here's Mo Salah. This is <laughs> the way that he is being used is unprecedented. I think in this particular, the the only person you could think that would possibly compare is David Beckham. But David Beckham was always seemingly in control of the things that he was publishing. Yes, he was a face of football, but you know the amount of money he has made off of that is, is ridiculous. And he was never put in a situation 
where maybe he was seen as killing gay people the same way that Mo Salah could be shown as, you know, it being in support of that. Um, it's it's insane what he has been put for, been put through. And now there are talks of him resigning from the international team. He's 26 years old, and they're talking yeah. about him resigning from the international team at the age of 26, which is just ridiculous. But again, this is not, this isn't even new. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm seeing this player's name. I, I don't. I'm not. I don't remember him personally. But uh, Mohamed Abukatora, Abutrika, uh, sorry, who was another uh, Egyptian player, uh, was accused by the Egyptian government for having ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, the former Egyptian government. There was Ahmed uh, Al Ahmed Al Maghani, who uh, called the Egyptian president useless on Twitter, on Facebook, and then was punished for it. A Turkish player, Hakan Sukar, had to flee to America because he angered President Erdogan, the the Turkish president, who has just controversially won re-election again, despite massive uh, opposition against him. There is just a position that these football players are being put in. These are football players. And yes, we could say, is Raheem Sterling being unfairly treated by western media for having a tattoo but he is not being forced to flee to another country he is not being used by chechnyan leaders to perhaps support the the murder of of minority people um i think you know if i was mo Salah and i was looking at the way i had been treated resigning from retiring from the world cup at this age does not seem like such a ridiculous thing to do like, do you think if he was to continue to continue to the World Cup, or even when he goes back to Liverpool, do you think this is going to be something that is going to play on his mind going back to to English football in you know, in September? Yeah, I think it absolutely will. Yeah, I can't imagine him putting this behind him with any great uh, swiftness. I think he's it's going to be playing on his mind for quite a while now. And like you say, it was it's not totally um, it's it's quite understandable that he may want to walk away from. The Egyptian national team. Um, it's not going to be an easy decision, obviously, for him. It's he's clearly their standout player. He's their star, and whilst maybe the Egyptian FA deserve a little bit of uh, of a reprimand for how they're mistreating him, I don't think most Mo. I think the way he was ambushed by the Chechnyan leader is an example of how nice a guy Mo is. Like he's he's well known for for doing anything for the fans and he within Egypt he is known for doing absolutely anything for a fellow Egyptian he won't hesitate as a as a video that came out um uh, from an airport where did you see this no I didn't. um he was going through security checks at an airport and loads of fans were up on the concourse um waving at the team and someone chucked an Egyptian shirt down from the concourse um in front of Mo and a pen, and he picked him up off the floor, and was, you could, he was seen yelling up to the to the fans, "What name should I put on it?" Oh and like, so he, he signed it and chucked it back. And this is after a disappointing second game, yeah, um, in the group stage. So he he's got a heart of gold. He's such a nice guy, and that's why I think he'd be so hurt by it, the things that the Egyptian FA have done to him, and how he was kind of um, just found himself in this in this uh, predicament with the the Chechnyan. Chechnyan leader because he he's not the sort of player who would go uh no and just walk away yeah he would just smile for the cameras and and do his bit because I think he's one of these truly humble football players who knows where he comes from 
knows how lucky he is and will do and will give back give back at any at any opportunity and that's probably why he's a little bit vulnerable to these these kinds of um, of machinations that are pushing him into uncomfortable positions yeah well he's hoping that Mo Salah um, isn't put in a position whereby he has to retire from the Egyptian team because it would be great to see a world-class player be able to bring his talents to his national team in, in future tournaments and also be a continuing inspiration for, for the Egyptian people and, and future Egyptian teams. That would be a real shame. Exactly, yeah. I don't think he'd do that to the, the people. I, I think he knows how important and how, um, you know, how, how revered he is to his fellow, to his compatriots, his fellow Egyptians. So I think that loyalty to his country and his people will override any frustrations he might have with the Egyptian FA, but that's not to say he won't try and uh, bargain with them a little bit, try and get him and his agent to have a few words, but yeah, I think he'll have a tough rest of the summer before pre-season um, and it'll be interesting to see how he performs in the first few weeks of the Premier League season with uh, Liverpool, mm. whether he has put it behind and can rediscover his form from last year um, but I will I will be I would be surprised if, if he turned his back on Egypt. I'll, yeah. I'll I'll say that. Well, hopefully this won't be the last segment of Magic Moments heading forward. It is a shame that Egypt have gone out that he didn't really have a chance to shine, that his World Cup was was overshadowed really by this kind of controversy. It would be nice to have some positive news going forward and if any more does arise, then we will be sure to let you know. But Dave, it, it seems to me really that we... This is kind of... We're coming to the end of the group stages now. Everybody has played uh, their second game. Some of the groups have played their third games already. Um, we're we're getting closer to the quarterfinals. I think maybe we have one or two more episodes in us before we uh, before we really jump into in, into the group stages. Uh, is there is there any matches looking forward that you are you're really looking forward to before we uh, before the quarterfinals kick off? I'm just looking forward to seeing how the knockout rounds start. Um, I've, I've, and how's it look? At least with the two, yeah, try and get my words out. Um, <laughs> with uh, groups A and B now finishing, we know that Uruguay are going to play Portugal in the next round, and Russia are going to play Spain. Um, I think Spain probably lucked out there. We saw how tight it was at the end of the Group B games, both games ending in a draw. Portugal nor Spain really showing their strengths, and Russia kind of having a bit of a a reality check after seeming to be firing on all cylinders against Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Fun coming up against uh, tougher, no doubt tougher opposition in Uruguay kind of uh, brought them back down to earth a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see if they can rekindle a bit of that early magic they got in those first two games. But if anything, we've just seen that you come across strong, um, strong opposition like Uruguay and they, they don't really have what it takes to, to cut to the mustard. Is that the phrase? Cut the mustard. It is doesn't now. Make it doesn't make an awful lot of sense, does it? <laughs> but um, so I think Spain, uh, well, Spain or Portugal, if they're whoever, which one of them were hoping to finish top, they were hoping to play Russia, and so Spain have lucked out there. Portugal, Uruguay, that sounds exciting to me. Mm. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Ronaldo versus Suarez. Although Suarez is not one of those players we've not really seen the best of. Um, Edison Cavani at the Uruguay is really yeah, putting more of a yeah. putting more of a more of a performance so far, um, and that they've have a play that I really like. Beckon Tur in midfield, he's looked really classy, and I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a move to a big uh, European club after the tournament's over. Um, 
so yeah, it's, it's looking forward to seeing how the groups shake out. Um, obviously, with a bit of self-interest being at, aimed at groups G and H, and to see how that turns out. England playing Belgium, I think that's one of the most exciting games on paper of the group stages. Um, it's sort of maybe just behind Spain, Portugal before the tournament started on the ones that were most mouth-watering. Um, so interesting to see how that goes. Hopefully, it won't be a bore draw with both teams knowing they're going through and don't know they don't really have to try that hard. Um, although nobody wants to finish second. Second is only marginally better than third because it means you get to go through, but it means you get a tougher draw in the next round. So, um, but with Group H being the way it is, no one team is really dominating. No one team has shown that they're they're gonna they're gonna go all the way. Colombia have shown elements of the, what they are, and like I say, Senegal have been exciting. Japan have been surprising. So, whoever England and Belgium play, they're probably gonna feel pretty um, confident. So. Uh, the World Cup is fun, and I'm enjoying it. And I, I want to clap my hands, but it, it might not sound too nice. But no, I'm, um, I'm very, uh, very excited. Yeah, I am definitely excited for England versus Belgium because it's the the team that I should be supporting against the team that I actually support. So that I, <laughs> that I find really because you know it, it's England. I don't expect England to do well, but I do expect Belgium to do well. So I'm kind of, you know, I, I want to see them. Really, I want to see them both win, but we will, we will see what happens. Well, it'd be amazing if, because uh, with that expectation that is on Belgium, and maybe that sort of uh, that subtle expectation that is growing in um, uh, towards the England squad, um, the whatever whoever comes out of that on top, or whether it's a draw, that will say a lot about the true nature of these squads because they both have easier. The first two games are both the easier ties of the three, so it's the first time either team has had to play a real strong. Uh, team in this tournament so far so it could tell us a lot about the the chances and the real strengths of uh, these two teams mm. well that seems like a perfect place to uh, to finish up this episode thank you Dave for your your expert insight as always oh, well you're welcome but I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far no you you never you're 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 too humble like Mo Salah you you are too humble if I throw you a t-shirt an Egypt shirt I'm sure you would sign it and be very confused but uh, thank you for, for joining us on this episode of Who Watches the World Cup. Please, again, this, this tournament is quite short. We're almost at the end of the group stages. Then we have the knockout, the quarters, the semifinals, the actual finals. It's all going to be over in a matter of a couple of weeks. So we really want as many people to listen in, in the next three weeks uh, as possible. So share it to, to anyone that you can. And thank you very much for listening. And uh, we will see you next time. Toodaloo. And we're going. We're rolling, recording. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Now, I know what you're like, Steve, with this editing. I do not want that at, at the end of the podcast. I do. I really need to go to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying right sorry. now, so 45 minutes. Remind me 45 minutes so I can tell Steve I need to go to the toilet right now. But I'll be, I'll okay. be right back. Bye. <laughs> Do you think it's number one or number two? Bop, bop, baby, I'm a bad man. <laughs>